You're listening to the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. No nonsense, just a crazy mix of life, business, the funny, and of course we're going to talk about your money. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. What could go wrong? All right, welcome to another episode of the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. And I have uh, a a huge guest, uh, a real honor, award-winning CNN reporter, Mr. Nick Valencia. How are you doing, buddy? I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, I, I was thrilled. Glad, glad my brother kind of put us together. Uh, I mean, we have certainly been following your career for a long time. So uh, this, is, this is really exciting, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun. And I definitely know the audience is going to love it. So let's dive in. Though. The first four questions are the hardest. So a lot of people stumble. It's tough. But we're going to get through, you know, you're in the industry that allows you to go through these rapid fire hard moments. So what celebrity, and we can be alive or dead, so any, it could be a historic figure, would you want to have dinner with? Peter Jennings. Okay. Yeah, Peter Jennings was my journalism idol growing up. My college professor was his West Coast correspondent, and she would come in towards the end of his life, we didn't know it would be the end of his life, but um, she would read off some emails that he would send to fire off the correspondence. And, and just to like have that little insight into like the behind the scenes peek into how somebody's brain like that worked and somebody who was at the elite level of journalism that I always mm. wanted to be. I mean, the nightly news is still the nightly news, but like during the nineties and the eighties, that was appointment television for so many people. And so something like Peter Jennings just was a, you know, exceptional force in journalism. And I would absolutely love to sit down with him and just pick his brain about what his insights were, his approach, his philosophy towards journalism, and also like what he would think about what's going on right now. And in this in this age of journalism, when so much has evolved and so much has changed from beyond the nightly news. Yes. Yeah, so I, I would want to talk to Peter Jennings, among oh, many other people. But he's the first one that came to mind. That sounds fascinating. And I think I'm putting that on my list as well. We're collecting quite a good list, but that's that's the first time we've had somebody. I mean, certainly in your field, that makes a lot of sense. But iconic. I mean, he is. He's iconic. Journalism giant. Yeah. All right. Love it. Great. Great answer out the gate. Here we go. Building on that, if you could be a superhero and have only one superpower, what superpower would you want to have? I love Batman, who's like the anti-superhero, right? I mean, he's like the normal guy who just goes out and fights crime. So if I had one superpower, God, would being able to like find Zen in any chaotic moment, is that a superpower? Sure. <laughs> I don't think anybody has it. So yeah, that's got to be it. <laughs> I read the Daily Tao every morning and I meditate and I, I hit my knees uh, every morning. You know, I, I have a higher power. I believe in God. And I feel like to be able to find your center in a moment of insanity, calamity, tragedy, chaos. I mean, that is something that I'm often thrust into. So it's a pretty applicable thing for me. It's a relevant thing to my life to be able to just like, I don't know, you know, uh, be Zen, you know, and to have like a spiritual grounding. I feel like this is an aspect of my life. I've started to explore a lot in the last six months, eight months to find like a spiritual center. So like be able to like have that spiritual core would be an amazing superpower. Like at any time I wanted to tap into that. That'd be awesome. I I love it. That's fantastic. It sounds like we have a similar morning routine as well. So yeah, I I appreciate that. And just yeah i mean look life life stressful up and down but to be able to just kind of dial in and yeah it is so right. stressful having like two small children navigating a career trying to be great at your job being a great father husband friend you know all that stuff so um yeah that that would be that would be an, a phenomenal relevant superpower for me to have <laughs> absolutely an enviable one all right would you rather visit underwater or outer space I think the depths of water are so fascinating, like to, to, to know and understand that, like, I mean, we've not explored a lot of space clearly, but like we live among the oceans and still really don't know what's in the water, how far, I mean, you know, we've had like deep exploration, but like, it'd be cool to see all the sea creatures 
And I really like Finding Nemo. <laughs> I really, I really love the uh, Finding Nemo movie. I'm getting into like a lot of Disney movies because of my daughter now. She's she's nearly three years old. And um, when they like go really, really deep into water and see like that fish with the light bulb on uh, on his head. I think that that's so cool. And I would want to know like what sea creatures, maybe I don't really want to know what sea creatures we live among, but like, it'd be kind of cool here on earth to like explore more of what's going on on earth. I remember growing up, one of my favorite, you know, Disney family films was, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea. And just, <laughs> you know, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I think while the only thing on planet earth I'm actually scared of are sharks, I still think I'd, I'd rather I'm, I'm with you. I think, I think I'd, I'd want to go underwater you know, Jacques Cousteau style exploring and just, there's just, I mean, there's tons that you, I mean, who can imagine? Like, where did the fear of sharks come in? Is it like a, like Jaws related or, you know, probably something like that where there was some sort of a traumatic experience. And ever <laughs> since then, I'm like, you know, and, and there's, I've tried to, I've, I've, I think I've become a little bit more rational about that in that. I'm not afraid of anything on land. Like, yes, there are lions, tigers, bears, all that kind of stuff. But I feel like I'm on land. You know, we have, you know, weapons if I needed to run. Like, I feel right. like I can handle things. On land. Underwater is not my, you know, it's not humans' territory. It's their territory. So I think <laughs> that that's where it's like, it's not irrational. That That's, you know, I, I shouldn't win versus Jaws. Like, that's not going to play out <laughs> well, you know? So, I, I don't know. That's bad. <laughs> Cool, cool. Yeah, underwater. That's got to be it for me. Awesome. All right, last one. Besides this podcast, of course, what other podcast would you want to recommend that would be a good listen to the audience? I am a huge advocate for mental health and to really, you know, because I have post-traumatic stress from my job and I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression um, in January of 2020, something that like you know, uh, I haven't been depressed in a long time, thankfully. I'm so grateful to say that. But during the pandemic was really, really hard. And, it, you know, my slice of it had to do a lot with with being able to cope with these these mental health issues that I have. And the armchair expert is so good. Hmm. Dad Shepard podcast is yeah. really good. I think also um, in my field, there is an inclination to to numb through the pain. So it tackles substance abuse issues. You know, I recently got sober this year and stopped drinking and just to Congratulations. be, thank you so much. I mean, That's I feel great. so good. I feel so good to be more present and just live cleaner. I'm training for a marathon now. You know, it's Whoa. just like leads to so much more in your life. And um, to share like, my experience, strength and hope. I feel like I see that reflected in a podcast like that. Uh, Living the Dream is a great podcast that my friend does out of LA. He's a sports broadcaster, Beto Duran. He's very, uh, pretty famous in the Latino community and especially in Los Angeles, but he has guests on who talk about, you know, what their experience is like living their dream, you know, and I feel like I'm one of those people living, living out my dream. I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. So that's another podcast. Um, And uh, Aaron Bender, the Aaron Bender podcast. He's another, these are both like local hyper local LA um, podcasts that I like to listen to because I'm from LA. So I get to hear a lot of the people that I grew up watching on TV or people that I am familiar with or kind of casually know from my industry. And, um, but like more nationally, Dax, uh, Dax Shepard podcast, armchair expert. And then the other two are, are really LA hyper LA focused. Love it. No. And, and I, I do when I can, I, I, I listen to Dax uh, I mean, he's just hilarious as a person. He's, so also, funny. He, he's funny, but he's also interesting. Like he has a, he, it's a good mix of just yeah. stuff. You you're right. Like you want to listen to Great. I love it. All right. So I want to hear your hero story. So tell the audience about yourself and you know, how you've managed to be an exceptional CNN journalist for all these years. Thank you so much. I, I've never heard a phrase like that. I keep my hero story. That makes me feel good. That's like a good way to ask somebody to talk about themselves. So I uh, have gone through a lot of adversity. And I think a lot of people who have experienced success in their life have gone through a great deal of pain and are able to overcome these obstacles that have hit them. We all go through challenges. It's how you react to 
to these challenges. And um, when I was 17, my dad died. And that like two weeks before high school graduation, and it completely threw my world upside down. So much so we're 20 years later, you know, I'm still finding ways to manage that grief. And Mm. I saw it as an opportunity, either, you know, the only way to the other side of pain is to go through it. And it took me, uh, you know, many, many years for me to understand that what I was doing is exactly that sort of facing what happened to me head on. And I just dove into what my dad always knew was my destiny, my path, you know, my God given talent of being a communicator and being a journalist. Um, He knew that this is what I was meant to do before he died. We had a, you know, a conversation about it. And I think me going into journalism was sort of paying homage to him. I, um, I got accepted into USC on scholarship. Um, I grew up in a, in a very middle-class neighborhood with a lot of immigrant families where I was the first person in my family, you know, I'm a first generation college graduate, paid my way through USC. You know, I, I did it with scholarships and loans. And for my parents, it was never, even though they didn't go to college, it was never a matter of whether I was going to go, it was where I was going to go. And, you know, by, by the grace of God, man, I got into Southern Cal, which is a great journalism program. I would say the best program and went there. I did a a bang up job. I um, got an internship at uh, Fox sports net by walking into a satellite truck and just asking for one, you know, so it takes an incredible amount of determination, belief in yourself I, I saw on my way to go cover um, a women's volleyball event. It was the first assignment I'd been given at, at Edinburgh TV News. And I just walked into the satellite truck and was just kind of like, hey, I'm Nick. I'm looking for an internship. That opportunity turned into an internship, which kind of springboarded the rest of my television career. In college, uh, I studied abroad. I think I recommend that to anybody who's listening and has the opportunity to study abroad to do that. That changed my life, just a complete 180. I thought I was going to go into sports and wanted to be an ESPN anchor, um, seeing the world having my convictions challenged, living in Bilbao, Spain, and traveling around for the first time as a 20-something-year-old or as a 20-year-old just changed my life. So when I came back, I just went full in to news. And I would love to say that doing really good at, CN- at, at USC got me to CNN and it prepared me. But I think a lot of life is, is serendipity and the luck that happens and you whether or not one is prepared for that. So my cousin was on a flight with a radio correspondent who got on a plane and tripped and fell and her badge came out of her purse. I wasn't even on the plane. And, you know, there we go. He, he went into pitch mode. He's like, Nikki just graduated from USC. You're Latina. He's Latino. He needs a break. Help him out. She put my resume at the top of the pile two weeks later. Well, five months later, CNN called me. And then two weeks later, I got offered a job to move out to Atlanta. And, and the rest has sort of been just not giving up. You know, I've gone through every emotion through this whether it's feeling like I belong, whether it's doubt, whether it's fear I wasn't going to make it. And I have always just been able to have this belief in myself that I'm meant to be there. Sometimes when, you know, that notion of the imposter syndrome comes up, you know, that took me uh, some time to get over initially. Because when you look around the newsroom, not a lot of people look like me. And at least, especially when I first started. But I've really leaned into that knowing that, hey, look, there may not be a lot of people that look like me, especially initially, I belong here. And like, this is my opportunity to like pave a path for others, even if I get credit for it or not. I want to make this road easier for people who come after me. And that was really something to get back to it instilled by my father, who was a great leader in in our local community and did a lot of stuff to help beautify our, our hometown, our neighborhood. And I think it's through this you know tremendous amount of adversity when I talk to people on their worst day, when I show up in these terrible circumstances, I was just in, in Surfside um, during, the, during the condo collapse. I'm able to connect with people and I feel like I'm at my best when I'm just like this, having a conversation with somebody and, and connecting with them. And that's sort of been my, in a couple of minutes, my, my story of the last you know, 15 years here in Atlanta and, and my uh, passion behind getting into journalism. You know? I, I really appreciate you sharing all of that because it is, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to see you embodying, you know, a generation of really community connection, care, leadership, yeah, and inspiring people in your community and people, frankly, across the, you know, the landscape of America to be able to see, yeah, you know what, it doesn't have to all look monochromatic and more like me, there, there needs to be a lot of 
exceptional people in these in these roles to encourage some you know generations to come. So yeah, I, I, I I'm not and I'm not surprised. I find that there seems to be that theme of overcoming, that theme of of being in adverse situations, experiencing them, being connected to people who are, yeah. you know, it just seems like that's such a galvanizing force for personal success, professional success, but also for um, genuine community engagement. And, so, and, and, and that role that I've um, really leaned into, and I never miss a chance at speaking to the next generation. I never miss an opportunity to, you know, whether it's a paid engagement or not, you know, I always make time to talk to younger journalists of color, journalists who come from, you know, poverty stricken areas, uh, black, black, white or other, you know, I mean, I have gotten the messages throughout the years uh, of people who are like, oh, I get to see somebody who looks like me on television. And that's something that really makes me proud. It really makes me proud to be able to be in this position, have this great responsibility to step up and be a representative for my community. And also, you know, I talk about being a generation college graduate. I mean, I'm finally, my family's been in this country for, for four generations. And just now with me, we are able and, and have the prospect of establishing generational wealth. And like, it's not for a lack of effort. My family has been in America for over a hundred years. And, you know, we just never were able to break through. You know, my, my grandfather was pretty poor. You know, I mean, that, that to me is a huge, huge win for my family and my ancestors who, you know, I, a lot of what I do is not just for my community, but it's like to, to want to make my ancestors proud who really went through so much. Um, and, and now I'm here in this position on, on, on the East Coast to try to do that. I, I want to kind of pull on two threads from what you just shared. One being the, the, the fact that, you know, when you look across the demographic landscape and you think about things like diversity, inclusion, equity, representation and access, the reality, I think, that's that's I hope more people can can connect to and embrace and understand is that it, it's not this level playing field of access where just kind of coming here, being here, being in this wonderful country means, yeah, the sky's the limit. You just got to work for it. That's not that's not how that plays out. Um, yeah. it, it might sound good. It might roll off the tongue, but that's not reality. And, you know, especially what you you're sharing that, you know, it's, it's harder for certain people groups to achieve success financially and otherwise. It's not for lack of willingness either on the part of my family, you know, it just, yeah. we couldn't catch the brakes, you know, and look, I mean, the fact of the matter is if my cousin was not on that flight with the radio correspondent who tripped and fell, I may have never caught my break. It has been really, really difficult to be out here in the South for the last 15 years and feel like an other or feel like I have to really try to fit in. And I, and I, and this feeling is still very fresh for me because it was just two weeks ago that I was, you know, or a week ago rather that I was home in LA and I was at the LA, LAFC soccer game or football game. And I, I looked around, I'm like, this is the first time in a long time that I haven't felt like I needed to, to fit in. People look like me and, and I, you know, now here, and it's a really unfortunate thing, but it's the reality is I walk into a room here in the South and my experiences here have been by and large good, but I still walk into a room in the South and I look around and I see who looks like me and it's often not many people. And so, yeah, that, that has been really, really challenging, but knowing that again, getting back to what I say, but, but I belong here, you know, and like, this may be my opportunity to get farmed out across the country to make waves here and have children who are uh, you know, biracial children. My wife is white. And to be able to establish um, a growing community whose duality is the reality and, you know, who, who, who loves hip hop music, but also loves tacos, who listens to Vicente Fernandez, but also, um, you know, goes out and likes to go to like, you know, uh, nice restaurants, you know, um, or uh, go to rock and roll concerts, man, you know, um, it's, I don't know. I feel like it's an opportunity for me to really show people how diverse the Latino community is, that it's not just people who recently arrived here from their country, but it's somebody like me who's college educated, you know, who has a career and who is part of the social fabric of their community. As someone who tries to 
recognize that everybody that has the opportunity to be engaged in this diversity, equity, inclusion framework from a communal standpoint, from an industry standpoint, from a national standpoint, I think, you know, you're really identifying a lot of those intentionality intersecting points where, you know, you're in a community now as a minority, but you're intentionally trying to build connections, build bridges, pay it forward for the next generation. and, and, And you're looking for those intersection points and those favorable relationships that'll make kind of get the tide to rise for other people. And I think that that's, I mean, obviously that's extraordinarily uh, wonderful on your part to do that. But, you know, I think that that's the same message that hopefully more people can connect to and to understand, you know, it just takes that intentionality of leaning into the fact that, you know, it, it, it might be uncomfortable you might have to connect with people you don't know, don't understand, but you become better as a person when you do it. And then you're able to really actually help, you know, move the needle for a lot of people. So I believe that. And I believe one person can change the world. You know, I, I mean, we, we traffic in such tragedy. We traffic in, in the worst of the world sometimes. And I sincerely believe, you know, that, you know, the, the change you want to see in the world starts, starts in your own household. And so if my white wife here from the South and me as a brown man from LA can make it work under this roof, you know, maybe there's more of an opportunity for, for others in this world. I do think that like things are, are very, very polarized now. And I'm, I'm at the center of that, you know, being at CNN and in the news. And I think we're very dismissive of people who we are different than, and we're too easily dismissive of people now in this day and age where we can have our opinions or beliefs or convictions reinforced in social media or out on a blog or in a new news site that we like, you know, and I use the term news loosely because some people think that they are practicing fair and balanced and fact-based journalism, but others, you know, would see it differently. I think it's really easy to just sort of dismiss somebody as an other. And what I think I've tried to do here in my in my 15 years is just be present and feel uncomfortable and feel in the moment and be present that, look, like this may be really, really difficult to look around and not see many people like me. But if I'm able to share with somebody my experience, strength and hope, as, as a Latina from LA living here, that I might change some, some people's perspectives and perceptions of, of what it means, not only to be a Latino, but also maybe what it means to be a CNN correspondent. I've like switched fans over on Uber rides and, and Republican strongholds and, um, you know, law enforcement officials. I mean, like I have been able to go from getting the, you know, uh, the pushback from people in person to like, Hey, can I get a CNN hat? Can I get a shirt? You know, I didn't know, like, I've always wanted to meet a CNN person, like a CNN reporter, like, tell me what that's like. And so I think, you know, that's, that's another opportunity that I have is to sort of shed those misconceptions of what journalism is. Cause right now I think it's so, it's so fascinating to be a journalist right now in this day and age. And I don't know how we're going to look back on it a hundred years, but right now there's no question that it's, that it's very polarizing. And I used to be able to say that I worked at CNN pretty freely. And now it's sort of like a case by case basis, right? I mean, some people don't like us and, and it's pretty evident and obvious that they don't, they don't like us. But yeah, I mean, I try not to let that impact me too much because I guess maybe, you know, I've had that experience of like changing people's minds about what it is to be a Mexican man in this country. And maybe, you know, that I use that experience as, and translate it to being a CNN correspondent now that journalism is so polarizing. I couldn't agree more. And my, my hidden secret in, you know, just doing podcasts and all the other stuff and in, in, in wearing a financial hat as a professional, but I graduated with a BA in journalism from maybe, maybe the second best journalism school in the country, (laughs) Indiana University, go Hoosiers. Um, I think actually, I'm sorry, the the J school has now been folded into telecommunications. I understand. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, but, but having that appreciation for what you're talking about in terms of the evolution of news communication, you know, I mean, the, the old, we report, you decide that's, it's very different now. And, and, uh, and also with all the mediums, there's a lot of stuff that masquerades as news, right? right. Quotes. That's right. And I, I, yeah, I mean, certainly we, we've had just, yeah, extended polarization, but it, it, that's why it's great to see people like yourself, not just bucking those trends, but I think doing things that are, I find, I think necessary in terms of communicating and creating a platform for storytelling, right? You're bringing people's stories to light. And I find that that 
is probably one of the most impactful things that the journalism field can be doing is allowing, you know, the whole world, the whole country to see, oh my gosh, that's somebody else's story. I didn't know. First of all, they, they're not like me. They don't sound like me, but their story impacts me. Right. I mean, so powerful, so powerful. Finding that relatability and that connection is our job as journalists, no matter where we go. And just by the nature of where I grew up and where I live now, I often go to these places I've never been before and where, again, people may not look like me. And so to be able to go into the backwoods of Louisiana and find uh, like one of the greatest people I, I interviewed was, uh, you know, a guy in Louisiana who I went to go do a story about how um, they were still teaching religion in a public school and the ACLU was going to sue. And they knew what they were doing was against the rules, but it was just sort of how they how they were raised there and to go into that parish and find somebody who I still, you know, Greg Lee, I still talk to him on a pretty regular basis and somebody who on paper may be so different from me. And I went there to sort of like tell what they were doing. That was like against the rules. Right. And I still came out of there with a friend that was people ask me all the time, like, who's the, your favorite person that you interviewed and expecting me to say some sort of celebrity or something like that. But when I think about all the people I've, I've met throughout the years, Greg Lee is right at the top, a guy who, you know, grew up so different from me, but I just, I love learning and going to these environments and he learns stuff from me and I learn stuff from him. And I think one of the great misconceptions of, of news right now, especially for me as a, as a correspondent, people think that like, you know, we all have different editorial margins, which is, or the channels are different, which is why you watch your, your channels. But at the end of the day, no one is telling me what to, what to say. All that is extemporaneously, you know, come, I come up with it on the spot, you know, like from the news and from the information I've, I've gathered, no one is writing my reports. I write all my own stuff. Um, and I'm not alone in that. Correspondents write their own material. I don't use a prompter. I don't have people telling me, hey, you need to frame the story this certain way. I'm a through and through journalist dispatched into you know a new area. And I'm my job is to go find out the story and communicate it back to and inform the public. You know, the fundamentals of my job are the fundamentals of journalism, who, what, where, when, why. And I work in a, in a cable station where you see, you do see a lot of opinion, you see a lot of talking heads, but that's not us. That's not the, the, the correspondents who are out there telling, telling the stories. And so that's a really uh, great opportunity that I have and, and something that, you know, I wanted to talk about too, you know, I wanted to address. No one tells us what to write. We're out there, we're sent, we, we report the news and, you know, we do a good job. Sometimes we mess up, but most of the time, you know, I feel like I do a good job, you know? Oh, you do an extraordinary job. And and that's, you know, I, I, I appreciate you framing that because, you know, you're right. And that's, I think one of the, people consume news in different, first of all, different times and you're looking at different things, but I don't think everybody, it's very easy from the outside looking in to homogenize it all and then make assumptions about how it all works. But no, you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's, it's really important to understand and you know, who, where I went, I'm I, like, I almost want to get up and like clap for that. <laughs> we need to hear that. We need to understand that that is, you know, raw, true and real and important. And, you know, another area of, of kindred spirit that I know we have is, is really you've, I mean, you've intentionally been in some pretty raw areas throughout your career in terms of, you know, conflict, uh, refugee crisis. I mean, you've seen the front lines of these things. And I know, you know, something for me, I've, I've had the privilege of, of taking several trips, uh, you know, to concentrate in the last five years on the refugee crisis. And I think that that's probably something where, back to your point of, of not just polarization, I think that one of my hopes in, is for this country to, to transition away from this kind of stigmatization, right? Mm -hmm. Where, we kind of judge people we don't understand, or we look at situations and through such a microscopic lens without really connecting to what's happening or identifying with the humanity of the people in those experiences. So talk a little bit about what it's like running into the crisis where people are running out, right? You know, what, what, what's, what's been the most powerful thing for you in those moments? The instinct of running towards something as other people are running away, I, it's something at the core of every journalist. You know, I, I remember being years ago at a 4th of July event in Atlanta where there was gunshots. And, you know, my photographer and I, who were there as civilians, ran and, you know, everyone's running away and we're running to go see, find out like where the gunshots came from. So like, that's not, that's like an instinctual thing that happens. Right. And yeah. we are running into the mess as everyone else is, is going away from it. And it's something I think I've always sort of done. 
you know, after college, I, I moved on a whim to Minneapolis. And I remember being on the 10, you know, on the 10 freeway, everyone was going west and there was just all this traffic. And like, I was one of the only cars going east. And I will always remember that image in my mind of like, sort of like taking the road less traveled by. So it's a familiar feeling in my life to try to pave my own way and, and be a pathfinder. But you never get used to going into a situation and looking, you know, looking somebody in the eye who's, who's gone through the worst. That is the hardest part of our job. And it's something that you can try to manage and you get, I think, prepared for. But, you know, anyone with a heart is going to be affected by that. You know, to talk about the, the, the migrant crisis, you know, we were in a, you know, essentially what is a refugee camp on, in Matamoros, Mexico. And I saw a little kid like who was dying in front of us, essentially. And the mother didn't know. I mean, he had flies swarming around him. I know I, won't, I don't want to get too graphic, but the mother was there and she had taken him to the doctor earlier in the day. And then this is where like the journalist person, you know, because before I'm a journalist, I'm a, I'm a human being. She didn't realize that she, just because she had taken her son to the doctor that day that she could take him back and he had gotten worse. So we informed her, educated her like, hey, your son is dying. You need to take him back to the doctor. And, you know, we didn't use it as part of the story. To me, that wasn't a moment that I wanted to, to showcase. Oh, look at what I'm doing. Look at what the CNN reporter is doing here in the CNN crew helping save this, this mom's child. You know, that was just something that I felt like I needed to do as, as a person to add value to someone else's life. So we make these ethical decisions on the spot. Our bosses aren't, aren't there behind our backs or breathing down our necks, sometimes even though it feels like it. And I don't think, you know, as much experience as I've had along the border, uh, seeing kids in cages and, and, you know, going into these facilities during during previous administrations as well, not just the Trump administration. I don't I don't ever get used to it. I think, you know, both of my grandfathers came to this country without documentation and they came they crossed illegally. But my grandmothers, you know, were born here in this country. So I have a little bit of both in me, right? My grandfather, one's from Guatemala, the other's from El Salvador, and then both my grandmothers are American. And so I'm third generation. (sighs) It's hard for me not to think about what my grandfather's journey must have been and and in different circumstances and in alternate universes or realities, or maybe in a different time, like that could have been, could have been me. What our job though is as journalists is to, we are surveys of one, And I don't really believe in this idea of objectivity because down to the people that we interview, it's a subjective choice. And my, my burden is to bury my bias in these situations in order to show what's fair. And fair doesn't mean giving equal time to both sides. It means being fair to what the story and the reality is. You know, if somebody is screaming, the sky is red, we're not going to give them more airtime again, you know, versus the guy who's like scientifically telling you why there's clouds and why the sky is blue. But, you know, it weighs on you. Those are the types of things that I feel like are best experienced through a sober mind, which is why this year I really made not only to be more present for my family, but also to know as I get higher up in my career, as I experience more of these, uh, you know, tragedies or am tasked with being there on the front lines of, of a historic moment, I feel like it's my service to to experience it through sober eyes and a sober mindset. And that has helped me sort of not take on their pain as my own, because we see a lot of pain, but, but to just really be the person there that's informing, whether it's our legislators, whether it's the public, lawmakers, my mom at home, you know, I mean, I great act of service. Journalism is at its at its foundation, an act of service to this to this world, to this country. And I, I that's what I try to do now when I go into these situations. I try to be added value and I try to be of service and not to make the story about me, but to make it about the people who who I'm there to to report about. And I don't think anybody can say it better than that. And I that's obviously why you're not just successful, but why I think that there's so much power in the way that you've been able to communicate about these experiences because you're right you know that that in kind of the framework of fairness like what's what's the most fair is the reality of what's happening in the people that are impacted by it. that's right. and, and and you know um i think that that's that's an incredible gift to continue to be able to focus that way because yeah it, it's not it's not easy and and i think that there's 
for the people that are able to experience the connection that you provide, that was one of the most amazing things that I that I didn't really realize was of value, you know, in, in going and, and connecting and doing mission work with, with you know, the refugee community uh, coming out of like the Middle East was, you know, how much humanity you're able to restore by being present and by allowing someone to share their story. Yeah. It's yeah. The, just the power of presence, the power of literally saying, I'm here for you. Yeah. Like, I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. And, and I want to hear your story. Like, I want you to know that you matter and that your story matters and it matters to me. And then it matters, you know, in, in someone in your role, it matters to millions of people that I can now connect to what's going on and connect to you. I mean, that's in many respects, it defies words and how, how critical that is. And hopefully that's also something I think, you know, we as a society can, can be more dialed into and, and more understanding about, you know, that when we see, you know, 30 second videos of people at a border, or, you know, there's so much stuff that sometimes just gets packaged a certain way, right? Yeah. And you really need to be able to see through that and to say, wait a minute, like, first of all, what would it be like if that was me, right? Or my neighbor yeah. or my, my child, you know, and just try to have that, like you said, that human to human connection. So people want to be heard, you know, I mean, I think you, you hit it spot on. I think we as humans just want to know that somebody's there listening to what, you know, what our grievances are. And, and we get to, we get to do that. You know, I mean, for some people talking about, you know, we'll just use the Surfside um, Miami condo collapse. Some families did not want to speak to us. And that is probably how I would be. I don't know how it would be, but I, I, I don't know if I would agree to do, do an interview. There are other families though that find it incredibly cathartic to talk about their experience. And that's who we're there to give a platform to. Some journalists, look, we, we get a bad rap because not every journalist is a good journalist. And there's people there that, you know, there was, I, gosh, ethics are different at different places and across different countries, um, ethics are different. And um, there are people who definitely go in there uh, looking to exploit these stories. And it's sad to see. And I hope I've never made anyone feel exploited. You know, I, I don't think I have, I feel like I've handled every situation I've tried to with as much grace as I, as I, as I can. But um, I know that there's those journalists who, who go in there and they're almost like rabid animals to try to get the sound because they need to be the lead story and they need to like, know they got the interview. I don't want to pressure anybody into being on, on camera if they're not ready. I, I don't want to ever knock on someone's door and force a grieving mother to be on camera just because, you know, we need to make a six o'clock deadline. That That's not being of service and that's not adding value. And even if it's not exactly what my editors would want, of course, my uh, the executive producers want that big exclusive interview, but we're the ones there that are on the ground having to look the people in the eye. And um, that's where our ethics as, as independent and individual people uh, that's where they come in. And like, what are you willing to do for the story? What are you not willing to do for the story? And that's something that certainly, you know, I think fatherhood has changed me a lot in that having having a child who's who's three and everything out of their mouth is why? Why? <laughs> all by myself, all by myself, you know, like, yep. I'll do it. <laughs> so um, so yeah, you know, again, just getting back to it, it's trying to be a value of service and, and, and giving people that chance and that platform to be heard. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. And let's try and switch gears. I think we could talk about this. I, I, I know I could talk about this for another week. So uh, <laughs> you, you're on vacation, you don't have that much time. Um, let's, let's, let's circle back to something I know we kind of prepared even, even before we started the recording, just to kind of talk through in a fun way. Uh, you know, this is a tends to be a financial show. And yeah. you said you had some interesting pieces that you wanted to kind of cover. So let's let's get into uh, you know maybe some of the finances of what it's like to be in 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 your space because yeah. um, it's you know it's it, it's certainly not uh, I would say not that any jobs are necessarily ordinary, but it's it's on on the edge of of something. You know, you're you, you said it. You you you're on the road 159 days a year. So. Tell me what what is what is has all of this been like for you? Because I also know I mean there are contracts, there are all there's all kinds right. of stuff that's that's just not maybe as as fundamental or regular across the, the land. Well, I'll tell you what happened to get me to this place was I got noticed by my boss at CNN after I got my job as a as a teleprompter operator. I knew I wanted to be a correspondent, so I I self financed my own trip to Uganda. 
So I ate the Wendy's menu for months, the dollar menu, just, you know, trying to save up. I went default on my rent, my $700 rent and saved some money throughout that and just took a chance on myself. Took a thousand dollars in cash to uh, bought my ticket to Uganda to Kampala, Uganda. A thousand dollars in cash, a backpack, a tripod, a microphone, and a camera, and crisscrossed the country over the course of six weeks and came back with a story that I did not get paid for, but that was my investment in myself, and and that return on my investment has been a thousandfold here. I mean, like it 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 has been so worth it. I came back to an eviction notice on my door, but because people I think are willing to, there's two things that happen when you put your dreams out there. One is we all know this people are going to hate on it and say, you can't do it. The other though, is people come out of nowhere to help you out. And whether it was the UCLA professor that gave me numbers um, on in East Africa that turned into a network of contacts and sources, or whether it was the manager of uh, the apartment high rise that I lived in who allowed me to make payments to settle my, um, hmm. um, you know, my rent that was bad due. people helped me out along the way, but it was really me that showed the willingness to, to go make that effort to invest in myself. I didn't come from a wealthy family who could finance my trip. I had to find, I, I had to see that entrepreneurial spirit in myself say, Hey, I have these skills. Let me create an opportunity. You have to be willing to do what others do. And uh, for me, I could have made the excuse that like, I've got this student loan debt. There's no way that I could finance a trip to Uganda. I've never been to Africa before. I'm not, you know, I'm making $22,500 a year at this point as at 22 years old. And I, I, you know, I could make all sorts of excuses. Instead, I found ways that I could could do that. And that's turned into a a career here where, where I'm on, you know, a contract now with CNN as one of their national correspondents. I wish my dad was still around because part of what has been so challenging in this is, you know, uh, I have a huge fear of money, man. I've got a huge fear of numbers. I went into journalism because I was good at writing, not good at math or really science. (laughs) And so for me, I, I've always been like, okay, how can I make sure that the money that I make now isn't just, you know, it lasts that I save it so that I can create better opportunities for, you know, for my children and my wife, you know, I heard somebody give me great advice, you know, whoever's in your marriage that is with finances should be the one that manages the money. So I'm, I am the breadwinner for all purposes in my family, but my wife manages the money because she's better at it. She can pull my, because you know, me, I have the tendency of like, oh my gosh, I'm making money now. Let me go spend it. I want to buy this. I want to buy this. I want to live in this big, nice house. I want to drive this fancy car. And we can get some of that stuff, of course, but also somebody like her who balances me out and it's like, we need to have savings for eight lifetimes because we don't know what's going to happen. It helps sort of balance each other out here where we're still able to enjoy it. We still have fun and we go out and we're so grateful to be able to, to do that, especially in this day and age where so many people are struggling and the pandemic has really accelerated a lot of people's desperation to be able to be a person of color and a first-generation college graduate and a self-made journalist and success story in my community, I want to be able to be an example for somebody else who's like, all right, I can do this. How do I do this? Oh, you know, Nick Nick must make X amount of dollars. And I don't want to, you know, look, they say journalists weren't going to make a lot of money in college. And that's, you know, we, we get paid a handsome salary at this level, at the national level and at this elite level of journalism. But I don't want to put out this perception of an opulent lifestyle and spending to my extremes. It's and spending outside of what, you know, having a bunch of credit card debt or whatever. Like I was that kid in college who took the free t-shirt and the credit card and didn't think that I needed to pay it back and worked years and years to rebuild my credit score and to rebuild, you know, the money that I had spent, pay back the money that I had. had, Cause no one told me, no one talked about this stuff. My dad was gone. I was too embarrassed to, 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 to ask questions, too embarrassed to look dumb in front of people. Um, so now I have a very, you know, my, my, again, my wife manages the money. I make 
a majority of the money here in our household. She's able to set us up to where we're doing good things for us, having savings, setting aside money for the future. And that, that's been really important for me and provides great assurance about, you know, what's going to happen next for us, you know, because nothing is guaranteed in this life, man. It sounds like your wife and my wife must be related somehow because <laughs> it's, it's the same thing in my household and which is to me twice as funny being somebody who's a professional in the financial services industry. And yet I can absolutely say, you know, my wife is better at all of the budgeting, the day to day. I mean, we literally, we had a conversation just last night and I'm like, you're not allowed to die, honey. Like, you're just not allowed to die. I can die at any point and you'll be fine. You're not allowed to do that. You can't do that to me because, you know, within a week, things are just going to fall apart and it's going to be chaos and our daughter is going to have to pick up the pieces. And anyway, she's wicked smart too. So we'd we'd be fine either way, but you got the right advice for sure. But also I appreciate, you know, several of the things that you were talking about. I think, you know, I see this all the time in working with people from all walks of life, all kinds of levels of affluence and all this other stuff. Money is far more emotional than it is logical and rational, but that's okay. Right. It, it's, it, I think the first step is just really recognizing that and then being able to engage with it and understand, okay, well, you know, let's not let the emotions cloud our better judgment, but let's find a way to work and play to our strengths and work through some things and, and still be able to do life well. And, and it sounds like, you know, you as a family, you recognize that money's really just a medium and it's a means to enjoying and caring for one another. It's not the end all be all. It's not what you're pursuing. It's clearly not what motivates you. And those are some really important fundamental things that I think, you know, again, those, those apply to everybody. And that, and that's something that I think you're, I mean, I'm I'm confident you're going to give that to your, you know, to the next generation, your kids and they're, and they'll pass it on as well. And it's so emotional to be a Latino man because I've got these cultural things of like, I want to be a provider. I want to, you know, give you the best and buy these expensive things. And, you know, here we are with an opportunity for generational wealth. And I want to, you know, I mean, I do drive a nice car and we live in a, in a, in a, a good home, you know, but like we never spend more than what we make. And, you know, uh, the financial advice I've gotten throughout the years is always just out of precaution, have three months of what your salary is to be able to like fall back on in case something happens. And that has come at the expense of, you know, I mean, we could eat out every night, but we don't. We cook dinner here at home. I try to have lunch here at home. I get checked a little bit more than I the, you know, hey, the cautions, like, don't go buy that because every now and then I'll show up and there's like all these Amazon packages. And I'm like, where do they come from? You know, I like as a provider or as somebody who's a provider and as a Latino, you know, culturally, it's like, yes, I want my wife to be able to go anywhere and buy anything and do anything. But that doesn't mean that you should, you know, that doesn't mean that you should do that just because you can do that. And I want my I, I want my child to have some security as well, just because it's so important as as an ethnic minority, as a person of color to be at the table, man, to be there with everybody else and to, to be an example uh, of of somebody, you know, who can do it. And it was also a financial decision, like, look, like, do we really need to go out and spend $150, $200 on dinner every night? No. You know, I mean, like not every, like my wife says, not every meal has to be your best meal, right? Not every meal has to be like this amazing, like delicacy that you've eaten, right? So, so yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've been able to put some of the sort of cultural expectations I have on myself, which is to be the man and that manages the money and like hand it over to somebody who's a little bit, I mean, or a lot a bit uh, more, uh, <laughs> who's better at it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. No, and, and, I, and I appreciate, you know, how, you know, how, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a humble thing, but it's also a very responsible thing. It's an empowering thing as well, because, um, you know, I, I always think, you know, forget, if you forget money for a second, but, you know, you think of like, a, you know, a good sports team or whatever, everybody's got to play to their strengths. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so just, it, it has so much application across life. And yet sometimes we get too, you know, like you said, embarrassed or, or insecure about it. And, and then it's harder for us to get those interrelational dynamics going. So that way money, you know, I, I, I was talking to a financial coach about this and he said it really well. He's like, you know, money shouldn't break you apart. It should bring you together. 
You know, it should be one of those things that you can connect on and find unity behind. Um, and yet that's not easy to do because like you said, there's, there's so many things that every person brings to the table when it comes to that. Then, and, you know, you, obviously you don't necessarily know all of that up front, but um, yeah, that's a, that's really, really powerful. And the fear has, you know, the emotion behind being afraid of this and being afraid to like be embarrassed that like admitting that, hey, somebody, you know, my wife is better at managing the money is something I think, you know, was a struggle for me initially, especially, you know, I'm 37 now. We've been married for six years. Initially, it was it was a struggle for me to be like, okay, let's join our bank accounts and like let I'll, you know, I'll let you take this one, Rach. You know, um, but the fact is like, what a beautiful analogy, just like a team, you got to play to your strengths and you're only as good as the weakest player on your bench. And I'm pretty weak when it comes to money. So like, let's, let's limit the fallout here that could happen. Right. Like we want to, we want to have a good secure future. Well, that's awesome. Well, I, I don't want to take up more of your time on your vacation. Let me just, uh, well, any final shout outs that you'd like to make as we wrap up, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Well, Scott Haney, I mean, for connecting us, this is just amazing. Congratulations to his family on his new beautiful daughter. And it's yeah. just so cool to see, you know, he was like one, he was my first friend in Atlanta and it was all on a conversation in an elevator. After I'd come back from Uganda, I edited my first piece on CNN on his laptop there Wow! in his apartment. So to like be on a podcast with his brother is like so cool because I've met your dad. I've heard about your mom. I mean, I Haney has been in my life for 15 years and to see how he has grown, how we've both matured, how we both have families now. Shout out to all the great wives who are better at managing money than their than their husbands because without my and I wouldn't be talking about, you know, financial security. I would be asking how do I, you know, <laughs> how do I get out of the red here? You know? So instead um, it's, it's a great, great honor to be able to, to be in this position uh, again, as a, as a Latino in this to be an example um, for people who, you know, may not believe that they can do it. And uh, I mean, I grew up in, in a gang in gang riddled Los Angeles where survive it was, it was, we had to survive, man. I mean, it was a sur- like literally, occasionally a life or death situation i didn't grow up in a war zone but sometimes it felt like it you know and um to be able to have gotten out and be here in atlanta you know it's just shout out to my family man who's just always believed in me and and um my dad who told me you're as good as the best and better than most so thank you for letting me give me this platform brian i really appreciate it very grateful for it oh you you are most welcome believe me it's it's been it's been an honor to have you on and uh, i really appreciate it so Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll pick up the conversation at another point. So thank you again. Thank you. Take care. The information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Haney is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated, member FINRA CIPIC.